Well, once again, I want to welcome you to uh, Midtown 12 South this morning. I'm Daryl, the assistant pastor here. Uh, thankful and grateful that you're here. Grateful and, and also thankful that I get to preach the word this morning to us. Uh, we have been, uh, as a congregation, walking through the book of Acts together. Uh, the book of Acts, also known as the continued Acts of Jesus, written by Luke, who wrote uh, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke as we know it, uh, also wrote the book of Acts. Uh, and he wrote them as one volume. Uh, and as uh, the Bible has been canonized, we split it into two, uh, given the, the subject matter of each. But the book of, of Acts really talks about the work of Jesus and the work of the church uh, after Christ's death, burial, uh, resurrection, Acts starts with his ascension. Uh, and then there, how did the first church, uh, the early church, uh, behave? How do they act? How do they interact with the world uh, around them? And what can we learn uh, from them as we are uh, in the 21st century uh, learning what it is to follow Jesus as well on our own? And so uh, we come to the book of Acts this morning. We come to chapter six, uh, six and seven, really. Uh, which is the story of Stephen, who is the first martyr that we see in scripture. He's the first person to be killed uh, for the faith, uh, which is a super happy topic for us on this Sunday morning. Bet you wish you were at that Titans game. Um, but Stephen was, uh, he was murdered for his commitment to Christianity uh, over the old ways of Judaism. He, he dared to stand up uh, against what uh, the Jews believed and they killed him for it. Uh, and so on this Sunday, as we bear witness to uh, the first martyr in scripture, as we bear witness to what martyrdom is, uh, often it can feel uh, a little flowery uh, and a little idyllic when we think of uh, the early church and we think of the first church because we tend to focus on those verses uh, like we saw in chapter two where they are sharing everything and nobody has need and they were loving one another and God was adding to their numbers. Uh, and all that was certainly true, but we know that it only took a matter of about five years uh, from the inception of the church at Pentecost until uh, this moment in which we find ourselves this morning uh, before we see that uh, whatever picture of, uh, of utopia we had is, is quickly shattered. Um, and so what we see from this passage is that the, the gospel brings this astounding amount of freedom. Uh, it's one of the, the hallmarks of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that uh, it brings a freedom for us uh, that has never been known in religion until that point and really since that point. Uh, that it brings uh, this kind of gospel freedom where we're free uh, from the, the penalty and the power of sin and free from the law. Uh, and then we find uh, that sometimes even in that freedom, it's not always welcomed. And that's what Stephen uh, was running into, that he was murdered for his commitment to Christianity over the old ways of Judaism. Uh, and what Stephen wants us to know, what Luke would want us to know this morning is that believers will encounter opposition, uh, both from within uh, the ranks of the church and without of the ranks of the church. And so three things we'll see in this passage. We'll see fighting within, we'll see fury without, and we'll see a future written. So uh, let me read for us. Uh, we're gonna be bouncing around a little bit. Uh, from Acts chapter six, we're gonna be verses eight through 15. And then we're gonna be in chapter seven, verses 54 through the end of the chapter. Uh, I do believe it'll be on the screens as well. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. And Stephen, full of grace, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit 
with which he was speaking. Then they, were secretly, then, they, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And looking at verse seven, or chapter seven, verses 54 and following. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, behold, I see heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, uh, we approach you this morning uh, really on, on holy ground, uh, hearing a story uh, of such uh, courage, uh, a story of such sadness, honestly, um, a story that we don't necessarily understand, a story that scares us. Uh, a story that's hard to talk to our kids about. Uh, and so, Lord, this morning, would you be the one uh, to make sense of this passage? Would you be the one to remove uh, the psychological noise that we feel this morning as we read such words? Uh, would you be the one who calms our hearts? Uh, would you be the one who is uh, Jesus to us as you were to Stephen? Uh, so in your name we do pray, amen. Uh, so again, I said there's three things we're gonna see, fighting within, fury without, and a future Written. So let's jump in with where the Lord was working in the life of the early church. Uh, looking back at chapter six and the previous verses, uh, in verses one through seven, we are introduced to Stephen. Stephen was chosen by the church uh, to be one of the seven men to distribute the daily rations and for the physical care of God's people. If you remember the sermon uh, last week, if you were with us, uh, where Elliot spoke of the Hellenistic Jews who were being uh, overlooked, the widows, uh, who were not getting uh, the daily food, the daily rations. Uh, and so the church uh, put together a, a crew of men who would make sure uh, that everyone was uh, cared for and everyone's cared for fairly. And among those seven men uh, was Stephen. This is where we were introduced to him. Uh, verse eight tells us he was a man full of grace and power who was doing great and wondrous works among the people. Uh, so Stephen was, uh, was recognized by the church as one who uh, cared deeply about the things of the Lord, uh, who they put in a position in an office of, uh, of service, uh, and also saw that uh, his personal devotion to the Lord was great. And as the old saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, because what happens to Stephen is the Hellenistic Jews, the very ones uh, that were being overlooked, uh, the very ones who were grumbling about that, uh, whom Stephen was, was given charge over to care for, uh, didn't want Stephen there. Uh, Stephen, he was, he was too much of a real Christian. They didn't want him. 
Um, they, they didn't like how he spoke about Moses. They didn't like how he spoke about God. They didn't like how he spoke about the temple, how he spoke about the law. Uh, Luke highlights for us that Stephen was full of grace and power, meaning that Stephen had a special anointing at this time in the early church uh, whether he preached, whether he was teaching, how he was serving, uh, all that he was doing, he was balancing the grace and the beauty and the mercy and the goodness that comes with Christianity. He was balancing that with the justice and the exclusivity and the holiness that also comes with Christianity. And all of this riled up the Jews in their midst because for the Jewish hearer to say that Jesus, as Stephen was saying, was better than Moses, to say that he was better than Abraham, uh, to say that he was better than Joseph. Uh, these would have all been fighting words uh, for the folks that Stephen was with. And so they sought to uh, rally some allies. They, they didn't like what he was saying, so they did some kind of backdoor, inner circle uh, dealings and, and, and rallied some allies and stirred up some ne'er-do-wells. And uh, they knew exactly what would get the people going. These Hellenistic Jews knew if we really wanna get these people mad, here's the accusation we need to bring against Stephen. We look at verse 13. They said this, this man never ceases to speak words against the temple and against the law. And if this Jesus that he loves so much is gonna do something about the temple and do something about the law, then we don't want any part of it. Is that what you really want, Hellenistic Jews? Somebody messing with your property and somebody messing with your way of life. Stephen was a threat to them. He threatened both and made it, and it made them so mad that they were willing to kill him. Stephen had touched the temple and nobody touches the temple. This is spitting on the Liberty Bell. This is wiping with the American flag. This is kneeling during the anthem. This is something you did not do. James K.A. Smith talks about Ka Kaepernick kneeling before the anthem and he said, it wasn't that he nailed, it's that he challenged the gods. What Stephen did here was that he challenged the gods. You don't touch that temple, Stephen. That temple sets us apart. This would be like someone turning Cheekwood into a Dollar General. This would have been so incredibly offensive to them. It would have been so incredibly exposing for them because here's the deal. This isn't just a Hellenistic Jewish issue, right? This is for us, this is for me. We all have things in our lives that if somebody threatens them, we'll kill them. You'll kill them. We all have those things in our lives because here's the deal. It's a pretty short walk from your head to the seat of all your idols. What Stephen was doing here is that he had exposed the idolatry of the Jewish people. He had looked the Jews right in their face with his angelic face. And he's saying Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to anything. This is the exclusivity of Christianity. Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to anything in your life that you wanna elevate above him. And this made the Jews so angry because Jesus doesn't do that. This temple that you love, Hellenistic Jews, it's just wood and sheetrock. Strong wind's gonna blow it over and earthquake's gonna take it down. 
this temple that you love, this temple that you've put so much of your identity in can easily be wiped away and it's gonna be wiped away, we know, throughout history. And Stephen is saying, God doesn't connect himself to this physical building. The Jews wanted to believe that God was just there and that he was just there for them. The temple made them just a little bit better than the people around them. Stephen is here saying that God is always with his people, much like our building here that we have. It's the church that's certainly true. There's a steeple on top. There's a sanctuary in it. There's kids' rooms downstairs. That's certainly true, but you are the true church. You're bringing the church to this building every time we gather. So whether we're here or we're in a strip mall in Woodbine or we're in a tent outside, wherever we gather is where the church is. That's where the temple is. Wherever we gather is where God is. And these Jews didn't want to believe that. Because the cultural icon and the cultural beacon that represented something for them made them just a little better than everybody else. It gave them something tangible that they could point to and say, that's what makes me, me. And Stephen is saying, what are you gonna do when that thing's wiped out? What are you gonna do, Hellenistic Jew, when the temple gets wiped out? Where will your identity be then? Because our identity, as we know, has to be in Jesus and his finished work on the cross on their behalf because what the temple and the law provided for the Hellenistic Jews was a way for them to earn their righteousness. If I just protect the temple, and if I just keep the law, then I'm enough. That's what protected their enoughness to be able to point to it and say, this is what makes me good. And this is what makes me worthy. And you know it, and I know it. The thing that makes me the most upset about Christianity is that there are doors in my heart that I don't want Jesus going into. They're closed, they're locked, they're barricaded, there's weights in front of them, there's a big dude sitting on top of them, they're not getting in there. And then Jesus comes in and he starts rattling these doorknobs. And the anxiety picks up and the anger picks up. And you know how angry that makes you. That when Jesus comes into our lives, Jesus comes in and says, I have claim over you. I have claim over what you do with your body. I have claim over who you live with. I have claim over your sexuality. I have claim over how you spend your money and your time. I have claim over every square inch of your life. And when Stephen is saying, Jesus has claim over all of this Hellenistic Jews, the Jews said, no, he doesn't. And you better be quiet or we're gonna kill you. And Hebrew tells us that Jesus keeps everything together simply by speaking, that by the word of his power, he holds it all together. And because Jesus is the Lord of our lives, Jesus says that seat at the center of your heart, that center of your thoughts and your emotions, that seat where all of your affections flow, that seat belongs to me. And I'll stop at nothing to make sure that I'm seated there. And I will stop at nothing, Jesus says, to make sure I'm seated there. Not because he's an egomaniac, but because he loves you. And because he's jealous for you. That God is a jealous God, we're, heard, we're told in scripture. And that you are to have no other lovers but me because none of those things that are central to your life, none of those things that are sitting in the seat in which Jesus claims to have 
uh, or that Jesus stakes his claim over, however, those things can't love you back. And Jesus is saying, I wanna topple them because they can't love you back. Jesus' temple can't love you back. Jesus' the law can't love you back. It's only Jesus who can love you. Your kids, they can't be in that spot. Your wife can't be in that spot. Your friends can't be in that spot. Your paycheck can't be in that spot. Being Nashville's 35 under 35 isn't gonna put you in that spot. There's nothing, anything placed in that seat is gonna fail you if that seat is not occupied by the scarred up body of Jesus. Of the Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you. This is what Stephen is preaching to these Jews. So Jews, yes, this temple is gonna crumble someday and the law that you love so much is the law that only Jesus could have kept and it's a law that you don't even keep yourselves. Stephen says this in his sermon in chapter seven. We don't have the time to read it, but he's saying to the Jews, this law that you claim to live by and you claim to love so much, you don't even keep it. And you expect everybody else to do it, but you don't keep it yourself. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. You put a burden on the people that you yourselves can't even keep. That law is too holy for you. And that temple is gonna crumble. And what are you gonna do, Christian? What are you gonna do, Hellenistic Jew, when you come to realize that those things can't bear the weight of loving you? That only Jesus can And Stephen launches on a sermon telling them how Jesus is so much better than these other biblical characters. He's better than Moses who delivered God's people out of Egypt. He would say that Jesus is the one who delivers you out of sin and he takes you through the wilderness of this world and he's gonna deliver you to the promised land of heaven to be with him forever. That he is better than that Moses. That he is better than Abraham. That he's better than Joseph. And that their own salvation rests only in Jesus alone. And and Stephen is warning them that they were in danger of losing the very thing they were looking for because they were arrogant and they were prideful. And after this monologue, Stephen looked at the Jews as he's done preaching. And the Jews said, you know what, Stephen? If you love that Jesus so much, we're just gonna help you meet him. They were furious. We wouldn't write a story this way. If we wrote this story, Stephen would have preached to the Jews and they would have been so happy and they all would have been converted. They all would have gone to KFC and gotten to potluck and gone to Severe Park. Do people go to KFC? Is this around? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's fine, it's Appalachia. Um, and so this, we, we wouldn't write a story that ends this way. This is why seminary is garbage. When I went to seminary, they would tell us that when you stand up and preach to people this way, they're gonna be delighted to change their lives. And they're gonna serve so much and you're gonna have people cleaning your bathrooms for you. And it doesn't happen. And Stephen is here and he's preaching this sermon and our expectation would be that everyone would listen and everyone would be converted and it doesn't happen. Instead, they get so mad, they kill him. Let's bring us to our second point, fury without. If we look at verse 40, or sorry, 54, these men were so mad at Stephen that they turned into toddlers who don't get their applesauce pouches. They were grinding their teeth at him, it says. Like dogs. Actually, dogs are great. Like cats. They're grinding their teeth like cats. Like rabid, feral cats at Stephen. And they're so mad at him that they're grinding their teeth. They're gnashing their teeth. We've heard that before, right? That's what happens in hell. That's what happens with evil. 
And here's Stephen with the face of an angel and he's face to face with evil. And here stands Stephen, unfazed, unfazed. Luke tells us he stood full of glory, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's a phrase that ought to cause, cause us to pause. Everywhere else in scripture, Elliot pointed this out last week, everywhere else in scripture, when it talks about Jesus in heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. This is the only verse that tells us he's standing at the right hand of God the Father. So what does that mean? Luke put that in there for us to know what does this mean? We're gonna confess the Apostles' Creed here in a second. We're gonna say he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he comes to judge the living and the dead. So what does this mean for us? Of all the commentaries I read, I say that so arrogantly, I read two, I read two of them. <laughs> of the two commentaries I read, the two commentaries I read agreed with each other because they're basically from the same camp. Um, of the two commentaries I read this week, both said this. There's, there's probably two reasons that Jesus is standing here. One, he's advocating for Stephen in front of God. Like a lawyer, like in a courtroom, right? He's standing up, he's advocating for Stephen, he's watching Stephen, he's watching every move he's making, he's watching how this is gonna unfold, he knows obviously how it's gonna unfold, but he's standing there and he's watching Stephen preach in the face of such hostility, speaking with such a humble gospel boldness that Jesus himself has taken notice and is watching play by play, watching his servant. Or more than likely, it's as John Stott says, Jesus is standing because he's gonna welcome the first martyr to heaven. Jesus knows what's gonna happen. He knows that Stephen's not gonna make it after today. And he stands, he rises from his seat, his seat of eternal rest. He rises to welcome the first martyr into heaven. Look what happened in, at the end of chapter seven. It says they rushed him with their fingers in their ears and screaming, bleh, 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 bleh. no, no, no. Like when you don't wanna hear somebody talk, they're covering their ears and they're screaming and they're rushing Stephen and they're there to kill him and they take him and they drag him outside of the city and they throw rocks at him until he dies. They throw rocks at him until he died a barbaric method of execution that the Jews didn't even have the right to do under Roman authority. They murdered him and as stones were pelting his angelic face, he looks and he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. As stones are smashing against his angelic bones and cutting his flesh, he raises his face and he says, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're so wrapped up in their anger. They're wrapped up in their ignorance. They're wrapped up in their hatred. They're wrapped up in their customs and in their idolatry. They don't even know what they're doing. They're just acting out. Jesus, would you forgive them? Who in the world talks like this? Who in the world talks like this? I would have said, stop throwing rocks at me. But Stephen is there and he's taking it. And Jesus is watching and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And Stephen can say this because Jesus said this, right? Jesus on the cross as he's dying, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. 
Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to shed his precious blood for my soul. Only one who has been so enthralled by Jesus can begin to live a life that looks like this. But I don't, I don't want you to fall into that temptation because it's easy to look at this and look at Luke and think that he's telling us we need to be like Stephen. This is what I was told growing up. You need to be like Stephen. You need to be willing to get hit with rocks. I'm like, nope, I'm not. I'm not gonna do that. But what he's saying is, look at Stephen because Stephen looked at Jesus. This is a story to tell us to live like Jesus did. Even though Stephen is certainly worth emulating, Luke wrote this to show us that we are never outside of the watchful eye of our Savior Jesus. And when his gospel, and when his good news, and when his salvation, and when our, our identity and our place in him calls us to take a bold stand in the face of sin, in the face of the world and the flesh and the devil, that we too can have the same Holy Spirit to embolden us and can look to the same Jesus for encouragement. That Stephen's earthly life would end that day. Stephen would die, tells us. He fell asleep, means he died. That Stephen would die. He would be in the presence of Jesus. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That Stephen would go to heaven this day, that he would breathe his last. But a revolution, the likes of which this world has not seen, is about to be unleashed because of this moment. This brings us to our last point of future being written. If we look at verse 58 in chapter seven, Luke just kind of sneaks it in. It says this, then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke just sneaks that in there. He just wants us to know there's a guy named Saul there and everybody gave their coats to him. In the midst of his recounting of this brutal execution, as Luke is recalling what happened and what he witnessed, and as he's gathering the stories of what everyone else witnessed, Luke wanted us to know there was a man there named Saul, and he's later gonna become Paul. And he's gonna write a whole lot of the New Testament. And from this point until the end of Acts in Acts 28, the book of Acts is basically gonna be about this man. The rest of Acts is gonna be about him. And here he stands holding the jackets of those people killing Stephen. And remember what Paul said about himself in the book of Philippians. He said, if I have a reason to boast, if anyone has a reason to boast, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to a keeper of the law, I was blameless. In short, Saul was better than you. And Saul was better than everybody else. And he ravaged the church. And uh, rather, chapter eight starts out that way with Saul ravaging the church. It says he went door to door, scaring away all the Christians, shooing them out of town, even killing some. Saul and his zeal for persecuting the church drove members of the church to leave town, to go off into different countries. But get this, they didn't stop meeting together. He might've ran them out of town, but they didn't stop worshiping Jesus. He may have ran them out of town, but they didn't stop having church. They may have ran them out of town, but they didn't stop converting people. Here's what Saul thought. If we can get rid of Stephen, then this whole movement dies. 
Saul might be better than you, but he might not be smarter than you because Saul forgot they tried this already. They tried it with Jesus. If we just kill Jesus, then everybody else will stop following him. They'll see that this was a fluke. They'll see that he's crazy. And they kill Jesus and Christianity explodes. They kill Stephen and Christianity explodes. All those areas that the church ran to, all the, where, the, where the Christians were dispersed, all those places would later be places that Paul himself would visit. Galatia, Ephesia, Philippi. All these places where the people scattered to are later gonna be the very churches in which Paul's gonna minister to because here's the deal with God. He always does this. The master plan of hell If we can just kill Jesus, everybody will stop following him. This whole movement will die. God says, Satan, I'm gonna let you do that. I'm gonna let you kill him. He's gonna die, but it's not gonna stop anything. I'm actually gonna take what you intend for evil and I'm gonna turn it into good. And that is the comfort and the encouragement that comes from a passage like this is that there is no evil in this world that can happen to you that God in the end will not use for his good. And we have proof of that with the murder of Stephen and we have proof of that with the murder of Jesus. In the English Reformation, 1555, uh, as Protestantism was being squashed uh, at every turn uh, by the Catholic uh, Anglican government, uh, Bloody Mary, this is when she had her reign. Uh, there were two members of the Reformation, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, and they had dared to speak against the queen and her edict to, uh, to stop the preaching of the Protestant gospel. And Bloody Mary, as, uh, as she was known, gathered uh, Ridley and Latimer and she had them burned alive in public, in the public square. Uh, if you go to England now, you can actually visit this spot. There's a little plaque that's in the middle of a parking lot, which is strange. Uh, but it's where Ridley and Latimer were set aflame because Bloody Mary was so mad at them. Uh, she burned them with green wood and they were being set aflame. And as they were being burned alive, Latimer looked at Ridley and he said, play the man, Master Ridley, because we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Play the man, Ridley. What this queen is doing right now, what she's doing to us, this movement she's trying to stop, it's only gonna set gasoline on this thing, no pun intended, and it's gonna move us even further. It's gonna move this movement even further. It's gonna catapult us into spreading this gospel around the world. Stephen, you're gonna die, you're gonna be stoned, but your death is not gonna be in vain. It's going to explode the church across the world because this is how the church always moves. Tertullian, uh, ancient church father in the third century said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That the church was planted and watered and it grows in opposition. That that's what the church does. That's how the church always moves. That the church is always in the midst of a godless culture. Right? This isn't something that Alex Jones made up. The church is always in these spots. It's always in the spot of being looked down upon in the spot of oppression. It looks a little different in America because we have a constitution, right, that keeps us from this for now. We have a constitution that protects this. And what this means is that your persecution might not be you getting hit with rocks, but I bet it's happened intellectually to you. You know what it's like to be ignored. You know what it's like to be nervous. You know what it's like to be scared to share your faith with a coworker, with a friend. You know what this is like. 
that those precious saints who took a stand in the face uh, of a culture that didn't want them there uh, with Stephen Stoning, we see in Revelation that God is going to avenge the death of the martyrs. And here's the thing, church. The church always grows in opposition. But the church is always there for those spiritual refugees. There were Hellenistic Jews who would have witnessed this and would have become Christians. They would have seen how Stephen lived and how Stephen died and they would have said, I wanna be a part of that. You know why? Because my enoughness has failed me. My quest for being enough has failed me. In Midtown 12 South, God has positioned us in a certain place on this weird street with all the white cowboy boots and all the big hats. He's put us in this place for this reason. He's put us in Nashville for this reason. But Nashville, which is growing like crazy, has a hundred or so folks moving to it every day. Moving here to chase the dream. We're not just talking about the music business. We're talking about the dream of success, right? Moving here because this is where the jobs are. This is where the people are. This is where life is, right? This is the it city. There's so much going on and that people will move here and then they'll quickly find that it's all BS, right? They'll move here and find that it's great for a minute until it's not. They'll move here and find that their enoughness that they're seeking can't be met in the place that they live. And where are they gonna turn? They're gonna turn right here. They're gonna turn to the church. We're gonna need some more seats. We'll get them in here. Randy Miller's here, he's got some ideas. We're gonna get people here. If we have to do six services, if we have to do seven services, it doesn't matter because we know that God is bringing people to Nashville and to Midtown 12 South almost against our best efforts. And he's still bringing people here to hear the gospel whose lives are being changed and that's not going to stop. Looking for the freedom from the shame, the freedom from the loneliness, the freedom from the feeling of enoughness that they're longing for, that we're longing for, can only be found in the one who is enough for you. Because here's the deal, if you feel like you aren't enough, it's because you aren't. We're sinful. But there's one who is. There's one who is who says, attach yourself to me, lose yourself in me, and find that I will make you enough. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, as we continue in worship, as we consider the words of the book of Acts, as we consider uh, what it is that Stephen accomplished for us on our behalf, uh, Lord, we look to you to be the one uh, who makes sense of all this, the one who makes sense of all our sadness, the one who makes sense of all our guilt and our shame, uh, the one who can redeem us. Uh, So Jesus, would you do that as we continue on into worship? Um, As soon as the band gets here, Lord, we'll start. Do you like that? So Lord, we are thankful uh, for your goodness to us. And it's in your name we do pray, amen.